but to read. <laughs> we really do need to go to that last part. And I'm going to preach from the beginning of the chapter. We'll cover the whole thing, but that was kind of the nub. I think that kind of gets to it. Uh, so just a heads up. Um, real quick, we haven't done the Nicene Creed in quite a while. And so just as a reminder, when it, that line that says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, um, we're Protestants. So do we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Yes, we do. If we understand Catholic correctly, first of all, the church is holy. Jesus died to make us his. So he has given us his holiness. He has set us apart for his purpose in the world. We're holy. That's the church. The word Catholic, another way to translate that would be universal. Um, it's not like Catholic is a brand name. You don't see a TM next to it. It's an old word that meant universal. We believe in one holy universal church. There is God's people. Though we exist divided now, in reality, there is one church. And it's apostolic in that the apostles are the ones, the preaching of the apostles are the ones who established this. Jesus sent the apostles out with the gospel, and that establishes the church. That makes her holy, and that makes her universal. So that's just wanted to clear that up. That's what we mean by that, okay? Um, and I uh, want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, if you want to go to the back, your uh, teacher will meet you. It's just a, an age-appropriate setting to read and learn about Scripture. So um, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look. Lord, we do need you, as we just sang. Um, we need you to come to our rescue. We need you to lead us, to rule over us. And so, Lord, we confess our need of you and our desire for you, and we ask that you would be with us. And, uh, Father, would you send your spirit to abide with us now as we open your word, as we study, as we understand. And, Lord, I think of uh, Soma Community Church. Um, I pray for their preaching this morning. I pray that you're with Pastor Mike. Uh, as he's preaching this morning, that you would fill him with your spirit to carry your word to your people. And Lord, I pray that you'd give uh, Mike and the elders a, a vision, a clear understanding of what it is that you desire for Soma to accomplish in evangelism and in discipleship. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just be with them this morning as well, uh, as, with, as, with, as the way that you're with us, as you being with us, Lord, would you be with them. And uh, so now we turn to your word, and, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and to understand. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So just a reminder, um, I have a theory about the book of Genesis. I have a theory about why it was written and when it was written. So let me just recap that real quick for you. Um, Moses led Israel out of Egypt. They'd been in captivity. They'd been uh, slaves for a period of time. God delivered them through Moses and led them out into the wilderness. Now, as they're wandering through the wilderness, two things became apparent to Moses. First of all, these people didn't know who they were. They started grumbling about going back to Egypt. We want to go back because we were better as slaves than we are now. And so they, they didn't understand who they were. They identified themselves as slaves. And the second thing is, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, they're down in the camp building idols. They built golden calves and said, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. They thought God was like the Egyptian gods. And so Moses recognizes these twin problems that these people have. They have a problem with theology of who they are and a theology of who God is. And so I think this is just, like I said, just my theory. I believe that he picked up and started writing the book of Genesis for those two purposes to explain to them who they were and who God was. How did they wind up in Egypt as slaves? And what is Yahweh like? 
because he's not like these Egyptian gods. And so the way that the book of Genesis breaks out is almost exactly in quarters. The first 11 chapters are span thousands, perhaps millions of years of from creation until uh, Abraham, just a huge thing. The only person who could be the chief prime actor in that kind of a time span would be God. And what we find out about creation is God did this. He didn't create just Egypt. He created the heavens and the earth. He's the God above all gods. And so that's the first part is we're learning about God. Then we would zoom in on this man, Abraham. And what we find out is God had a family that he had picked out, a plan, and he gave them a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham that he would, Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the world, that they would inhabit the promised land, Canaan, and that they would be enslaved for 400 years. Then the next section of the book is Jacob and Isaac, or Isaac and Jacob. Isaac happens really quick. He's in and out pretty fast. But Jacob takes up the majority of that time. And what that's showing is God is faithful to transmit his covenant to the next generation. It doesn't get lost just because Abraham has died. And now we're in the final section. And the, the thing about this final section with uh, Joseph is the narration slows down incredibly. The first section was thousands or millions of years. The second was about 100. The third was about 100. The same amount of paragraphs takes about 50 years in Joseph's life. Why does Moses slow down so much and give us so much detail about Joseph? Because what he's trying to communicate to Israel is, you are not slaves. You did not go into Egypt as a conquered and defeated people. You went in as celebrated guests of the ruler of, is of uh, Egypt. And so it's important that you understand this. So the way I understand that is we have to understand who our God is. He's not like the gods that surround us. He's not fickle. He's not uh, temporary. He's not um, weak. He is the God of the heavens and the earth. And we need to understand who we are. We are his people. He has chosen us. He has made us his people. And he will be with us. So where we're at in Joseph's life is last week we're at his, his zenith, at his worst point. He was at his lowest. He was in prison. He had met two guys from Pharaoh's court that he'd hoped would get him out, and nothing happened because the, the end of the last uh, chapter said um, that the, uh, the cupbearer forgot him. And so that was where we left him was still in prison. Now this week on chapter 41, it starts with two whole years later. So we get this idea that, that Joseph has really been suffering. What happens this week, though, is, is I mentioned this last week, and I just thought this was a cool title, Joseph Ascending. Joseph is rising up now, and God is going to rise him up. And so what we're going to see in this is this is where Moses begins to show Israel, you're not slaves. Look at how you enter the land. This is the beginning of the exaltation of Joseph. And so for us, what we learn is how to be exalted. And that, that can mean two different things, how to be exalted, how to get exalted, how to, to go to the place where you're exalted. And then the second part is how to live as one who is exalted. So how to be exalted is kind of where it goes. So what I'm going to do is kind of just summarize real quick the, the, uh, the narrative and then kind of begin to unpack it. Um, it says that after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. And what's really interesting in this chapter is Moses tells us Pharaoh's dream then he tells Pharaoh, telling Joseph the dream. Then he tells Joseph, explaining to Pharaoh the dream. So we get the, the dream reported three times. Why on earth would Moses spill so much ink to repeat that dream three times? Over and over again, he says it. He could have said, Pharaoh had a couple of dreams, and when he woke up, he was troubled. Nobody could interpret them. They brought Joseph out of prison, 
and Joseph interpreted them and then have Joseph explain it. It would have been a lot shorter, more concise. When the authors of the Bible repeat something, they're wanting to make a point. They're doing it on purpose. So I think what is going on here, and this kind of echoes the theme from last week, is this dream is repeated three times in this section to remind us this is God doing this. God is up to something. You, you don't see him a whole bunch. It's mostly a lot of talking in this chapter. But what Moses is telling us through all that talking is God is still active. He is still working in Egypt. He is still up to something. And so what happens is Pharaoh has the dream, can't find anybody to interpret it. He goes to the, the wise men and the magicians of Egypt, and they haven't got a clue. They, they look at the dream, and they're like, sorry, sir, no idea. Um, wouldn't it have been wise for them to make something up? So they look like they're still in charge, right? We're still, we still get it. I, I, I think this is a supernatural thing. It, it troubled Pharaoh, so he knew this was a supernatural dream. There's something unique about this. And the wise men were wise enough to go, if we tell him what it means and it doesn't come to pass, we're going to wind up like the cupbearer and the chief baker. So it's better for us to just say, we don't know, and, and leave it at that. So after that happens, after the... the, the um, Wise men and the magicians say they don't know. Then the chief cupbearer speaks up. Now, last week, he was in jail with the baker, and they had two dreams. And Joseph interpreted the dreams and said, cupbearer gets his job back, baker gets executed. And that's exactly what happened. So now the, the cupbearer has been back in Pharaoh's court in favor for two years, and this is what he says. I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard... We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So notice the chief cupbearer's deference. He doesn't say, when you threw me in the can, unjustly, he says, I remember my offense to the great Pharaoh. He's being very careful. He's not going to anger the Pharaoh again because he knows what happens. But now suddenly he remembers Joseph and he says there was a young Hebrew and he interpreted dreams. So Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly bring him out of the pit. That's what it says. It says they brought him out of the pit. When was the last time Joseph was in a pit? At the beginning, his brothers threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery, who got hauled off to Egypt to become the slave of Potiphar. And now it mentions again, they go and they draw him out of the pit, and he comes to the Egyptian. But this time, it's not to go into prison, but to be exalted. It feels to me like Moses is putting these two bookends on this. He's saying this episode of Joseph's life is now complete. He went into a pit, and now he comes out of a pit. And so this is kind of a breaking point. Moses is, is packaging this for us because this is an end of an era for Joseph. This is the end of his suffering, end of his, his being subjected. And now he's going to be elevated to a position where he can do some good. So Pharaoh pulls him out of the pit. It says that they shave him and change his clothes. That was the Egyptian form of bathing. Was they, would shave. they didn't like hair on people, so they would shave their hair off. Um, kind of weird, but okay. Um, so that's how they, they wash him. They put some new clothes on him because you don't show up in front of the king of the world looking shabby. So they get him ready and they rush him into Pharaoh. 
And Pharaoh says, I had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's an incredible thing he just says right there. He says, it is not in me. It's literally one word that means without. And then the prefix, the, the suffix on the end of it means me. What he's saying is not, um, it's beyond me. Like he's, he's being falsely hum humble. This is actually a good translation. It is not within me. It's without me. It's beyond my capability. Pharaoh, you're looking to me and thinking that I have this natural ability to interpret dreams. And it's not within me. It's not something that I just do. So he starts off by acknowledging, I can't do this. But he promises him, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And the word for favorable there is shalom. We know what shalom means, right? Peace. So the King James says he will give him peace, an answer of peace. He's going to set his mind at, at rest. A favorable answer, it really gets at it, though. I mean, I think that's really a, a pretty good translation because you can't take shalom and just substitute it for the word peace and think that they equate. They don't line up that way. It, it has a meaning beyond just peace. Peace is the way we're kind of trying to summarize it. So what he's saying is not, Pharaoh, whatever you tell me, it's going to be great news for you, buddy. You win. That's not what he means by it. What he means is God is going to give you an answer to set your mind at ease. You're going to hear the truth in what God answers you. So that's his promise is, I can't do this. But God will do it. And God will give you the fullness of the answer. And then the next thing he does is now tell me the dream. So I can't do it. God's going to do it. But you tell me and I'll give you the answer. He understands his position here. He understands where he stands in this hierarchy. So he's not putting on a show for Pharaoh. He's not trying to explain to Pharaoh, oh, hey, dude, I'm all over this. You just tell me and, and you got it. Nor does he, he do this false humility. Oh, that little thing. He, he stands before the most powerful man in the entire earth and honestly says, this is not something I can do, but God will do it. So go ahead and tell me and, and we'll see what God has to say. So that's the position, that's the kind of man Joseph is as he stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh now recounts the dream again, but this time he adds a few details. He says that seven cows come up out of the Nile and then after them, seven other cows come up, ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in the land of Egypt. And then he says, and the thin cow, the thin ugly cows ate up the seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had been eaten. So this little, this is not part of the dream. This is Pharaoh's impression. This is his emotional response to the dream is I have never seen such an ugly, thin, gaunt cow in all of Egypt. It's just never been around. That's how bad these cows were. And when the second cow ate the first cows, you couldn't tell they ever ate anything. They remained just as ugly and thin as they ever were. So that's a little detail that's this emotional response that, that Pharaoh has to it. And really, that's the key to unlock this. This is, this is where Joseph is going to really begin to unpack it. So Joseph explains the dreams to Pharaoh. Jim read that for us. The two dreams are actually one dream. They're saying the same thing. And that's, that's the same thing that happened with Joseph. If you remember the beginning of Joseph's story, he had two dreams. The first dream was, my stalks of grain are going to stand up and all yours are going to bow. And the second one was, I'm going to be standing there and all the stars of heaven and the moon and the sun are going to bow. 
And they were both saying the same thing. Joseph is going to be elevated above all his family. The two dreams in prison were two different dreams. The same kind of story, but one ends happy with somebody getting their job back and one loses their head. So they weren't exactly the same dream, but they were kind of along the same line. Three days, you get the answer. And now Pharaoh's dreams are the same thing. They're repeated. And so he tells them the dream, and he says, here's what's going to happen. The fat cows and the, the thick ears are seven years of abundance. Egypt is going to produce like you have never seen it. It's going to just be as, as fruitful as you can imagine. The, the land is going to produce like nobody's business for seven years. But then you're going to have seven years of famine that you have never seen before. It is going to be so horrible. It's not like nothing we've ever experienced. And he says the, the, re, the reason that the dream is repeated is because it means it's sure it is going to happen. Now, remember last week when we interpreted the dreams, I said nobody has a, dream, a, a gift of dream interpretation. Um, and there's no magic key. So if you ever see a book that shows you what these symbols and dreams mean, be very suspicious. Last week, it was three branches and three baskets. And they meant three days. Now it's seven cows and seven ears, and they mean seven years. So how do you tell if it's years, days, months? Because God tells you. That's how you tell. So this is, this is Joseph performing a supernatural effect. He is inspired by God. He's given the answer to this, and he's able to accurately uh, give the answer. So this rings true with Pharaoh and, and his servants. This makes sense. This, is, this is, sounds like what these dreams are about. And Pharaoh goes on, or I mean, uh, Joseph goes on to explain, well, here's what we need to do about this, boss. You need to find somebody who's a really good administrator to rule over the land. And while the, the land is producing plenty, take 20%. That's one-fifth is 20%. Take 20% tax on all the food that's produced and just sit on it for seven years. Just hold on to it. That way, when the famine comes, we'll have enough food set aside that we'll make it through. We'll survive the famine. So you need to find somebody who's going to be in charge of that and then overseers throughout the land to regulate that. That, that's my advice to Pharaoh. He's not telling Pharaoh what to do. He's just offering his advice. And so Pharaoh's response, he looks to his servants. So these, these wise men and the magicians who were like, I don't know what it's about. I don't, I don't understand. He turns to them and he says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Where are we going to find anybody to do this? Look at Joseph. Look at this young man. He was able to give me the interpretation of this dream. God is working through him. And so he exalts Joseph. He puts him in charge. He puts a signet ring on him. He puts robes on him. He puts him in his second chariot. And as they're traveling through the city, they yell out in front of Joseph, bow. That's where he's gone. He's gone from the pit to now Egypt is bowing before him. The only thing that Pharaoh will contradict him in is anything that has to do with the throne, any of his, his royal position. That is, again, that's where Joseph can't go. Beyond that, Joseph gets to do anything. He will be in charge of all of Egypt to save Egypt. And so that's, that's the position he's now exalted to. And then finally, Joseph is enculturated. He's brought into Egyptian culture. He's given a new name, Zephaneth Paneah. And do you know what that means? Yeah, nobody else does either. There's some guesses. We get kind of close. But there's a handful of a range of, of uh, ideas of what this means because it's not strictly Egyptian. 
Uh, it sounds roughly Egyptian in God speaks and he lives. So one idea would be this is God has spoken to Joseph and therefore we're going to live. Um, another translation, the, the one that the Jews preferred was um, interpreter of mysteries. And, uh, and then the worst one is the Christian one, I'm afraid to say. Uh, St. Jerome, in the 400s, he translated the, um, the Bible into Latin. And so he translated this as Salvator Monde, Savior of the world, which has nothing to do with those words. Whatever it means, he's now got an Egyptian name. So now he's gone from Joseph, the Hebrew, to an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. He's been shaved. He's been clothed. And they give him a wife, Asneth, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. There is no, there was no Egyptian god named On, by the way. I looked it up, couldn't find one. So what does it mean that he was the priest of On? What that means is he was a priest in the city of On. When this got translated into uh, Greek, instead of On, they said Hierapolis. Almost assuredly, On was not Heropolis, but it's, it gives you the idea. This is a priest of this particular city. So he's a high priest, a very powerful person, and his daughter's name is Asneth. Now, Asneth means, in, in Egyptian, uh, she belongs to Neith, and Neith was one of the Egyptian gods. So apparently, Potiphera was a priest to Asneth in the city of On, is what, what's going on there. Anyway, he's a high muckety-muck. He's an important person. And so that was Joseph. Now Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So that's the, the nub of the story. Um, what's going on here? Why did Moses write this in such detail? Why does, he sell, why does he tell Israel this? Why does he think it's important for Israel to get that? And then it's important for us. Why does it matter to us? Well, what, what Moses is telling them is a couple of things. He's reminding them through the repetition of the dream. Like I said, God is not absent during this time. Joseph is a slave. Israel, you were slaves. It wasn't like God forgot you there. God was with you. He was working in Joseph's life even when Joseph's life was horrible. God was with you. So even now as you're coming out of Egypt, as you look back at your slavery, you need to remember God was at, has a purpose in that. He was working and he led you out at the right time in the right way. So don't forget that, Israel. And we'll see that them coming into the land later. But you need to remember that God was with you, that you are not slaves. Your father, Joseph, was a slave, but he was exalted because God was at work. And so that's what God is going to do with this nation of Israel. He's going to exalt them as he brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery. So that's the important thing that, that Moses has going on. And that's why I think he puts those bookends of into a pit and out of a pit is he's reminding them this period, this defined period of suffering for Joseph is over, and it is over because God has brought it to an end. Why did Pharaoh dream? Because he had pickled herring for dinner? No, he dreamt because God gave him a dream. God decided when it was time for, Pharaoh, for Joseph's slavery and his imprisonment to end, and God definitively acted. And he acted within the Egyptians to do it. The same thing happened for them. Why did, their, why did their term of slavery come to an end? Because God acted. He sent Moses to lead them out of slavery because it was God's predetermined plan. He was going to do it. So that's what the, the uh, Israelites need to hear is they need to remember who they are and who their God is and what their God's been doing. So how does this then come to us? What do we do with this? Well, I think the first key is 
I, I said how to be exalted was the, was the theme of it. How to get exalted is the first one. And then the second one is how to live exalted. So how do you get exalted? Um, Joseph was taken from slavery, imprisonment, to second in command of Egypt. How did he do that? Was it through political manipulating and, and building up the right amount of savings and, and putting the right money in the right hands? No, it was because God raised him up. Why? I think the answer for that comes in his response to Pharaoh. Without me, God will give you peace, a peaceful answer. What you see is as Joseph is standing before Pharaoh, you see a man who is humble. Now it's, he's humble, and yet he pronounces, this is what's going to happen, and this is what you should do. And, and this is God giving you that answer. So I've said this when we were preaching through Luke. What is, what is biblical humility? Biblical humility is knowing your place before God, who God has defined you to be, recognize who, recognizing who you are in front of God. So when, when Joseph is there, he doesn't build himself up, nor does he act like, oh, I'm just you know, a doormat. He stands there as God's man in this situation. Joseph is humble, and therefore he's exalted. That was the call to Israel. Israel, you need to be humble so that you'll be exalted. And that's the call for us. And I think the, the place in the New Testament that says it extremely clearly and, and very well is 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6, this is how Peter talks to the, the people that he's writing to, those in, in what he called the dispersion. The church is scattered around. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So do you hear Peter's, Peter's command? He's looking to the church who is being persecuted, the church who are being opposed by the Jews who are opposed to the church growth, and they think of it as some bizarre Nazarene cult, as the Romans who don't have a clue what they're talking about, they're calling Christians atheists because you don't worship the emperor. And in the middle of that, Peter is writing to the church and he's saying, no, you need to stand firm. And so he starts by humble yourself. Church, recognize who you are in front of kings and rulers, powers and authorities. Recognize who you are. You are God's people. God has chosen you. God has affixed his love on you. God has placed in you his love. Humble yourself. Don't be too exalted because you think you're so hot that God would love you. And don't be so abased that you think God would never love me. Instead, recognize God loves you. Humble yourself before God. Under his mighty hand. Now you think about who I am. God has affixed his love on me. This God has a mighty hand. So as all of these things are opposed to me, as all of these, these powers and these authorities are opposed to me, it's under God's mighty arm that I humble myself. Not before Pharaoh, not before Caesar, 
not before the Sanhedrin. I humble myself under God's mighty right arm because he's mighty. He's over all of those things. So that at the proper time, he will exalt you. Isn't that exactly what happened with Joseph? Joseph is humbled. He's brought very low, but at the proper time, at the right moment, it's God who exalts him. God gave Pharaoh the dream right at the right moment. God sent the baker and the cupbearer at the right time into Joseph's presence. It is God who at the proper time will exalt him because he's humbled himself. Because even in the midst of it, he's saying, I can't give you these answers, but God will. I understand who God is and I understand who I am. Humble yourself so that you'll be exalted at the right time. Now, does that mean life is just easy peasy? No problems, no worries, bump free. You just get to sail into heaven, you know, coasting, no problem. No, because the next thing Peter says is cast all your anxieties on him. There will be anxieties. There will be struggles and strife. Do you think Joseph went to prison going, oh, this is great? He was anxious. That's why he told the cupbearer, hey, get me out of here. I don't like this. This is hard on me. I want out of this. So Peter reminds us, cast your anxieties on God. He doesn't say never have anxieties. If you feel some anxiety, take a pill and make it go away. What he says is, you will have anxieties. They will come. But don't inhabit them. Don't live in them. Cast them on God and throw them to God and say, Lord, I'm under your mighty hand. I'm humbling myself and I know these anxieties are real, but I'm throwing them to you. Would you do something? Would you exalt me at the proper time? Why? Because the God of the universe, the God who spoke creation into existence, cares for you. The God above all gods, the God over Pharaoh, the God over all of these things, this God cares for you. Do you believe that? When anxieties come, when struggles, when you're worried, when, when things come, do you believe that the God over everything cares for you? At that point, you're tempted to think, he doesn't care for me, he doesn't even notice me. But Peter's promise here is this God, this creator, this ruler, this magistrate over all magistrates, this king over all kings, he cares for you. He actually cares for you. That's why you can cast your anxieties on him, because he's strong enough to handle them and because he cares. He wants to hear it. He cares for you. And then Peter warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Be aware. Don't think that life is going to go a certain way. Understand that things come and go. Things sometimes are positive, sometimes they're negative. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You still, though God has cast his, his love on you, though he cares for you, though his mighty right arm is extended over you, you still have an adversary. And what's worse about this adversary is, you know what? He didn't give a rip about you. He didn't care. He's not trying to dominate you and make you his own. He hates God and wants to ruin you because it'll hurt God. That's, a, that's an adversary to fear. And the adversary who wants you will protect you and try to win him to yourself or win you to himself. An adversary who doesn't care is like a lion. He's just going to tear you up. It doesn't matter. So you need to be aware. You need to be watchful. You need to be on, on your toes watching for this because since you have been fixed with God's love, the adversary is not happy with you and will oppose you. And that's what's going on with Joseph. When it's time for Egypt or Israel to come out of Egypt, who does God judge? According to Exodus 12, 12, 
God judged the gods of Egypt. What are the gods of Egypt? The New Testament tells us they worship demons. These are false gods that are opposed to Israel, that are opposed to Joseph. That's who the enemy is. You have that enemy prowling around like a lion looking for you. This is why you have anxieties. This is why those anxieties belong with God. This is why you humble yourself under his right hand. He's the one that can handle the adversary. You're not powerful enough. So be on guard. Be aware that he's prowling around. Resist him firm in your faith. How do you resist him firm in your faith? When your life is falling apart. When things are coming apart and you, you, you get to that point where you feel like God has just totally forgotten me here. I've been in this prison for years, and, and now what? How do you resist Satan in that time? Because he's the one nattering in your ear. God doesn't care about you. He forgot about you. If he really loves you, would he leave you like this? Why do bad things happen to God's people? Isn't he terrible? How, why would he do that to you? So you have to resist him, standing firm in your faith. How do you do that? Well, when we saw Joseph, the only thing he had... The only the, the thing that he had to hang on to was the, the dreams that he had. God had promised him that he would be exalted above his brothers. He had promised him in that picture of the grain, the, the, the stalks of wheat, that it would be him that would provide for his brothers. And so in his darkest time, I imagine Joseph is hanging on to that, that picture, those dreams that God's given him. And he brings them up later on. He reminds his brothers later about, hey, I'm, I'm ruling over you and it's okay. For us, we have all of God's word. We have all of God's recorded promises over and over again, including the one we just read. God cares for you. That's how you resist Satan. That's how you stand firm in your faith. Is you keep reminding yourself, the feelings I'm having right now are real. They're legitimate. I'm actually having them. But they do not define reality. God's word defines reality. And God's word says, God cares for me. Though I may not feel it, though it may not seem like it right now, God cares for me. When I'm in that pit with Joseph, when my brothers have turned against me, when the, the cupbearer who I hope would get me out of here has forgotten about me, God's word says he cares for me. And that's how you stand firm. That's how you resist, is you keep remembering God has promised to do these things for you. That's why Moses tells Israel, God didn't forget Joseph while he was in prison. God didn't forget you while you were in slavery. God has been active, even when it's not visible. That's how you resist him and you stand firm in your faith. And then, then Peter says, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When we suffer, when we're, when we're feeling bad, when we're feeling persecuted, we tend to withdraw in and we think, I'm the only one experiencing this. I have never, nobody else is having these doubts. Nobody else is having these worries. Nobody else is experiencing these, these things. And so we tend to withdraw because to be outside is to be exposed again. And somebody else could let us down. Somebody else could say something insensitive. Somebody else could not sympathize with me. But what Peter reminds us is you're not unique. As a matter of fact, it's kind of providential that we read the Nicene Creed. You are part of one holy Catholic or universal apostolic church, and the church is being persecuted. So your sufferings, your strugglings, they're not unique. They're not just you. Other people struggle and wrestle as well. And so don't forget your brothers are suffering with you. And remember those who are suffering and pray for them. Pray for each other. 
encourage each other, remind each other of these tremendous promises that you read in the word. That's how we stand firm together and resist the devil. And then the promise, after you have suffered a little while, time out. Suffered a little while? Joseph has been in prison about 12 years. Either in slavery or in prison, he's been there 12 years. A little while? I've been dealing with these struggles in my life for 30 years. A little while? Peter, how can you say a little while? This has been going on for centuries. Well, what Peter is reminding us here is when you stand back and you look at the, the plan that ha God has for his church, the purpose that he has for his people, how far into the future does that stretch? It just keeps going. It never ends. And at a certain point, it is utter bliss because we are with the Lord, uninhibited by sin, by death, by destruction, by decay, and that goes on for eternity. So in 400 billion years, when you look back at your life, you go, it was 30 years. It was legitimately hard. It was really tough, but it was only 30 years. So when he says a little while, he's not being facetious or he's not downplaying your suffering. What he's saying is in the grand scheme of things, it will not last. It comes to an end. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Our God is the God of all grace. All grace. And what does grace mean? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is his favor towards you that you didn't earn. He simply has affixed it to you. This is the God of all grace. All of his favor is shown on his people. The God of all grace himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace will do that. So in eternity, who do we thank for us making it through these difficulties, making it out of the pit? The God of all grace. He has done these things. And that's why Peter resolves all of this with worship. It's the only place to go. Once you've realized this is the only place to wind up, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a great prayer. So how do you get exalted? How do you go from a position of, of not being exalted to a position of being exalted? Humble yourself. That's what Joseph did. Find yourself under God and understand who he is. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of who you are. You are a sinner saved by grace. By God affixing his favor to you. He has given you these things. Remember that. So now when you're standing in a public square and somebody ridicules you, you don't have to feel like they've insulted you personally. You can say, without me, outside of me, I can't do this. This is God because I'm his. And so sometimes you will be angry and sometimes you will be passive. It depends. So that's how you get exalted. So how do you live exalted? How do you get to the point where you live in the state of being exalted without getting full of yourself and thinking you're all that. How do you get there? Well, recognize something about Joseph. The way this section ends is he gets new clothes, a new job, a new name, a new wife. So when Joseph goes into Egypt, would you say that Joseph enculturated? Did he adapt to his surroundings? When his brothers come to talk to him and beg for food, they won't recognize him because he's so Egyptian. He's so stinking Egyptian. They won't recognize him. 
He's been called to this position. He's been let out of the pit, and he accepts this. He doesn't say, oh, I won't have anything to do with Egyptian culture. You people are horrible. But at the same time, he doesn't say, I am now Egyptian. And how do you know? Because next week, we're going to find out what he names his kids. He has two children. And what does he name them? Ephraim and Manasseh. You know what those are? Hebrew names. So even though he is enculturated, even though he looks Egyptian at this point, he is still a Hebrew. He still recognizes who he is. And what does Hebrew mean? Have you ever thought about that? We just throw the words like Jew, uh, Jewish or Hebrew. Jewish means from the tribe of Judah. Hebrew means the son of Heber. Who's Heber? Well, back at the beginning of Joseph's story, we find out Heber is one of his great-grandfathers. So to be a Hebrew is to be of that family line. So Joseph says, I am still that. I am still a Hebrew, but I'm living in an Egyptian culture, living in an Egyptian way. And so for us, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it feel kind of like where we're at? You are the subject of a king. In Sunday school, we talked about the American Revolution. We threw off kings. And yet, you are part of a kingdom. You are the subject of a kingdom. You have a king who will rule over you, and you live in a democracy. So look at this as, as Joseph. Do we establish our own little enclave in this area and try to hive off and, and hide from everybody else? No, we look like everybody else. We, do, we, we act, we are Americans, we vote, we do all of those things. And yet, we maintain our identity as God's people. I, I am here, I'm wandering in this land, I understand that, but my allegiance is to a king. My citizenship is in a kingdom. I'm just dwelling here for right now. So how do we do that? What does that look like? In Jeremiah, Jeremiah is prophesying the end of, uh, of Judah, the southern tribes. They're going to head off into captivity. And when he says this is what's going to happen, he tells them to go and to do something very specific. So uh, Jeremiah 29, this is what the word of the Lord is to the Jews being carried off into exile. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I, am, who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We could say, this is the word of the Lord to all the Christians who are in exile in the world, waiting for the coming king. Another way to think about that. He says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat of their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what we're called to do is a similar thing, is to live here, pray for this city, seek its welfare, because we're dwelling here temporarily. Now what's going on here is, the way this could have gone is Babylon came down and took Judah into captivity. And the plan was, we'll bring them into captivity, take them out of their land, bring them into our land, and we're not going to oppress them because we know how that goes. There's revolts. Instead, what we'll do is we'll make them like us. So we'll just bring them in, and they'll live here for a while, and they'll begin to assimilate, and they'll become just like us, and then they're not a threat. Now they're us. 
What God is telling him is, go into that city, build houses, marry, have children. Don't, don't decrease. Don't be squashed into nothingness. At the same time, don't assimilate. Be a unique people. Pray for the blessing of the, of the city, N not to their gods. He's not, there's no way in the universe uh, Jeremiah would have advocated praying to false gods. Pray to me, is what the Lord is saying, on behalf of the city. Re maintain your unique identity in the midst of that. So how do we live as exalted in the midst of this? We follow the example of Joseph. We follow the, the commands of the Lord to, uh, to Judah as they go into exile. We are in exile. That's how Peter described us. As those in the dispersion, we're in exile. And so how do we live in that is we come and we pray for this city. We seek the welfare of this city. We are some of the best citizens this city has ever seen because we are sons of the king. We're representing the king in the kingdom. And so that's the call on us. That's how to get exalted is to humble yourself and how to live exalted is to seek the welfare of the city, the welfare of the city being the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we need to pray that the, the gospel spreads here. We need to seek to bless this city not just by being good as citizens, but also by bringing the gospel to this city. That's how they will flourish. That's how they will receive welfare. That's how we pray for them, the blessings of that city. And you get that because Joseph is now the second in command of all of Egypt. That's the picture that we've got is this unique people that God is carving out. And he's doing that, first of all, through Joseph to create a place for them and then a place for them to come in and have it. And that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has, has walked in this nation. He walked in this world as an alien, as a foreigner the whole time, to carve out a place for his people, to call his people to himself, to lead them and to rule over them so that they might be a blessing to the nations. So this is, this is Joseph ascending. This is the church ascending. This is God and his people. So what we'll see next week is how Joseph actualizes that. He doesn't just get to that position and sit on his hands and go, hey, I've arrived, got the house, the car, the kids, you know, everything's groovy. I'm just going to take it easy now. Joseph works, and that's what we'll see next week. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we are grateful that you have fixed your love on us, that you care for us, that even as um, our nation turns away from uh, respect for the church to disdain for the church, Lord, we pray that we would stand firm, um, not looking to the good old days, but Lord, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to remember you have a purpose and a plan. And so, Lord, we look to suffer for a little while, knowing that our brothers throughout the world are as well. But Lord, we also looked to be a blessing to this nation and to this valley and to this city. Lord, we can't do that without you. We can't just ball up our fists and be humble. We can't just ball up our fists and resist the devil. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. So would you send your spirit to strengthen and encourage us? Lord, I pray that we would make use of the things that you've given us, remembering your promises from your word, hearing the encouragement of the saints, availing of ourselves of prayers, and Lord, that we would lock arms together and stand firm, waiting for the coming of the King. Seven years of famine will end. Lord, we look forward to that time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.